So Henry David Thoreau once said, heaven is under our feet as well as over our heads. That was in Walden. And if you have no idea what Walden is, uh, you know, let me explain a couple things here. I'm, this isn't a literary lesson. So I'm going to get into the gist of what this show is actually about in a second here, but just bear with me. So Walden was Henry David Thoreau's sort of like travel journal, essentially, when he went off to live in the woods. His idea was he's sort of gotten tired of living without reason, sort of just going through the habits, the dull routines of life with having a job and living in the city and talking to people and everything else. And so he thought, okay, I need to get away from all that. I need to go out and just be by myself. I need to do, basically strip away all the structures in my life until I am actively choosing every single thing that I do for some reason that I'm okay with. So live deliberately. And his way of doing that was going out to live in a cabin in the woods. And so it's sort of like this idea that you need to connect with everything. Once you've connected to the world around you, you can choose how to live and realize the impact of every choice that you make, right? So it's that idea that heaven is not some abstract thing. Heaven is all around you. Heaven's underneath you. You have to be aware of it. You have to think about everything around you and then act accordingly. So that's like this fantasy. And I think Americans have had this fantasy for a long time that if they had to, they could go be, you know, self-sustaining. They could go live in a cabin in the woods with nothing and figure it out. They could go build that cabin in the woods, you know? They're going to go out there. They're going to cut down the trees. They're, they're not going to, like, go to a Lowe's and build the, the cabin. They're going to go cut down the trees and build that cabin and make it all. Make it so it's completely sustainable, right? That's like the It's not the American dream. Maybe it's the American fantasy. I don't know. But... I've certainly been uh, obsessed with that idea for a few years as well. I haven't gotten done anything like that, but you'll notice even like in my movies, I've gotten met much more interested in the idea of like feeling sort of like that reverence for everything around you. And like that's been mainly manifested in things like multiple movies where people explain what biodegrades and what does not. I've actually made a rule for myself that I'm not allowed to ever make another movie where someone has to explain what's compostable. So... The idea, though, I think is relevant beyond just like movies, beyond just, uh, you know, the fantasy that Americans seem to have that they can be self-sustaining because you can do a lot of that stuff, but you don't have to necessarily go out in the woods. And so that's kind of what today's show is about. So today I'm talking with Brent Lubert and Eddie Quintero about something that they're doing that's very interesting in terms of trying to actually bring a community community together that is sustainable. So I think it's important to sort of distill the idea that to be sustaining, to be doing that American fantasy, you don't have to be by yourself. You know, the idea of having reverence, of living your life in a way that is deliberate, does not need to be divorced from the concept of community. And so what they've done is they have an initiative, it's an urban farming initiative called Big Muddy, which is very interesting. It's in Omaha, and part of the idea is... Let's eliminate wasted Omaha space, city space, and let's do something interesting with it, right? So today I'm talking to them about that. And so I know the previous shows have kind of been about either entertainment or politics. This is more about mindfulness. This is about living every moment, living deliberately, as Thoreau said. But instead of having to go out in the woods, why not just start in your backyard? This is my conversation with Brent Lubert and Eddie Quintero. This is Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Enjoy. You guys have to share a mic, I'm sorry. That's great. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna hog this one as the host, so. Okay, first off, why don't you guys introduce yourself before we get going. Yeah, you can like hand it off, you can talk, you can both like lean in together. I don't know, it can be as awkward as you wanna make it. Do a duet. You could, yeah, do you have any duets? Acapella? Yes, exactly. 
Is that all of that happening on the farms? That's that's what uh, bonds people together is by singing, and then we'll, we'll get out into the field and keep singing. So. That's right. Okay, so introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Brent Hooper with Big Muddy Urban Farm, executive director. I've been with the farm for seven years and uh, constant force throughout the organization. I'm Eduardo Quintero. I'm a resident this year for 2019. Okay, cool. So thank you so much to both of you. Um, let's start, just in general, how did you, I mean, first off, are you guys from Omaha? Yep, born and raised in Omaha. Um, I did move out to San Francisco for a couple of years before running out of money and uh, coming back home and realizing just how beautiful Omaha is and how much opportunity there is to uh, live, live a good life here. So. Is that, well, the reason why I ask is basically, was there much exposure to farming when you guys were growing up? Um, well, so I call it Texas home, but I grew up, my childhood was spent in Missouri, northern Missouri, uh, just south of Kirksville, if anybody knows that. Uh, wow. <laughs> the limited audience is really... Uh, yeah, we, we're very selective with the limited audience. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, yeah, it was interesting to grow up in a rural area, um, be exposed to a lot of farm life, but then in my adolescence um, and in my early 20s, uh, I didn't connect with any of that. And I felt like I grew further and further away from some of my roots. Um, and so yeah, it's just really awesome to kind of get back to where I started from. And I grew up a city kid. Uh, my mom, comes from St. Paul, Nebraska, so every now and then we visit relatives out there. That's like kind of central Nebraska near Grand Island town. But yet, didn't have much experience with gardening or connection to agriculture growing up though. Yeah, so I mean, like that's what I'm curious about, especially since you're from Omaha. Outside of people maybe growing a little bit in their backyard, I don't know a ton of people who have, at least in my experience, a whole lot of either interests or hobbies even related to farming. So I was curious, what was the point when you sort of got the bug for it? Uh, and maybe that's the wrong terminology, because there's probably a lot of bugs involved with what you do, but metaphorically. Sometimes good bugs, sometimes yeah. bad bugs. Uh, yeah, so for me, what really brought me to, to this work uh, is from working on a documentary. So my formal education is within uh, filmmaking, and this documentary is feature-length called Growing Cities, and we traveled across the country interviewing urban agriculturalists, so going to these different cities, meeting these people, doing amazing work that brings community together, and also starts this conversation around how can we build a sustainable food system, how can we uh, live a better life. Um, that just totally rocked my world, inspired me, and so getting back home, uh, I had, had to get my hands in the soil, so that's how I got involved. I think for me it was just a growing concern with the way um, history was unfolding and um, just kind of a desire to 
do more and get involved somehow. Um, and I feel like this opportunity just kind of fell in my lap. Um, well, I, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but Big Muddy seems like a very unique opportunity um, from an academic standpoint. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just felt like over the years, it was just kind of like pushing me to become more and more involved and concerned with our food and with our, the city development um, and just like, you know, the community. Um, so, yeah. Well, so like, I mean, I imagine for both of you, when you decide that you want to spend a significant portion of your life or even devote your life to something like uh, urban farming, it's not like it's a hugely lucrative choice necessarily, right? So it has to come from some, type, some sort of passion. Uh, like, what, what do you attribute that passion to? Like, so is it thinking about the future? Is it just like rage at what's going on? Or where does that come from where you think like, yeah, I'm okay with the discomfort that this lifestyle might cause, but it's worth it for me. Yeah, so even now I'm still learning how much like discomfort and uh, like sacrifice, you know, is involved. Sacrifice is so much better than discomfort. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, regardless of um, you know how much effort and energy it takes to embark upon any sort of endeavor, um, I think it's yeah definitely your motivation why you want to do it, and that keeps you uh, driving forward. Um, so for me, it was just from like a humane standpoint, you know, um, there's so many different aspects of urban farming uh, that helps solve a lot of problems, um, whether it's like environmental or social or political. Um, yeah, so I just feel like it made a lot of sense for me to try to get involved in something like this. Uh, even with like basically no real background besides like childhood, like helping my grandpa like pick beets. You know, like I, I didn't know what was going on, I had no experience. Um, so yeah, that, that, that drive, that passion for humanity really uh, makes sense to, to grow food for people. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's getting to this livelihood. So I mean, you're gonna be working most of your life anyways. Um, so uh, this line of work, yeah, you're not gonna make a whole bunch of money, but you are going to be able to support yourself. And so you'll be able to support yourself while also uh, growing food that you can then also eat. So you have two ways of supporting yourself in that way. And so would you rather be working in a way that you're working for yourself and also supporting others or joining in to a job that you might not like, even though you might make some money, but you don't like it. so. At the end of the day, you're not very fulfilled. With farming, you're fulfilled because you're working with nature, you're learning every day because something's new. Uh, you're understanding how much this last snowfall here, how is that going to affect the season going forward. So every day there's just something new that presents itself that uh, keeps you going. So. You studied filmmaking, you said? Yeah. What kind of filmmaking? So, documentary film okay. is where my heart lies, and uh, cinema verite, and um, yeah, just getting to the truth that matters. Sure, and documentary filmmaking seems like it has that, you can channel passion into something that hopefully has some kind of real world results. So, uh, were you able to sort of, when you switched from maybe thinking about documentary filmmaking over to something like farming, was it sort of like the same drive as being satisfied with both of them? Or what, what kind of documentary films did you want to make, first of all? Yeah, well, 
documentary films, cinema verite, so looking at ordinary life and 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 being able to observe it multiple times. Um, I don't know, I haven't really thought about filmmaking in about <laughs> seven years. So uh, what's your favorite? Uh, like what were the models you had when you were thinking about making stuff? Sure. I mean the in inspiration comes from John Cascavetes is one that I go back to a lot of Oh and Under the Influence, which isn't a documentary film, but it's presented in that very raw uh, documentary manner and uh, uh, just being able to, and also presenting ordinary life too. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's just like my nerdy interests are going to spill over here a little bit. But so, I mean, as far as that goes, even like when, when I've been making movies, so I've made a few feature films, they're really, you know, independent micro-budget type stuff, but something for me that I've increasingly been focused on is like, it bothers me, especially if you have a conscience for like what the world is like and how you're doing things, you start to even think about making a movie in the most like friendly to the environment way, like how much trash we're producing when we make it, stuff that I've started to think about. And, if any, you know, there's at least one, two people in here who've seen my movies, and it's like I'm starting to get obsessed with like those themes come into the movie itself. And so, like, were you ever interested in, were you interested in farming or like eco themes in general? What you're doing was that where you're going as far as your interests were? Um, yeah, I, I, I'd say yes because so how I got involved at least with growing cities is that coming from San Francisco, you see this wonderful food culture that is out there. And then you get back home to Omaha and you're wondering how come we live in an agricultural state and we don't have much of a healthy food culture here, at least when we first moved back. And, uh, and so then that kind of spurred me into this documentary because when we were putting it together in the pre-production, it was based around these discussions about food and what's going on in the world, so. Okay, and then so, I mean, was there a point where you think like, okay, I, a movie's not enough, so I have to actually do something more tangible? Definitely, I mean, it, it, you're just, with so many activists within their own communities, and they just put a fire in you. So, uh, yeah, you get home, and that fire burns, so. And so, were you involved with Big Muddy from the very beginning? Well, yeah. Yeah, so you, did you, did you, are you the, like, the sole, uh, I don't know what the originator, what, what's the word I should be looking for? Sure. Okay. Co-founder. Co it, it, okay. it, it's always been a community organization. It was built by a community, um, and so part of that community was seven original co-founders that uh, came together, started meeting, seeing vacant lots in our neighborhoods, and uh, understanding that there's, it's hard to get access to fresh, healthy food. And so why don't we put those two together and, and try something out and put a farm together. How do you get to the point though where like you have that idea and then you even have any idea how to start to put anything together though? Friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> friends just knew, like, did you have friends who had done something it's, similar? It, so, it, yeah, so I mean, we, coming together with seven people uh, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and we can bring those strengths forward. So some of us knew a little bit more about uh, the horticultural side of things. I knew a little bit more about the communications end of things and starting a business. And, uh, and so we all bring these strengths together, and we're able to push it forward as a group. Did it, I mean, at what point 
did it seem like a real tangible thing that you could put together though? I mean, because surely it starts at first, you're like, wouldn't this be cool? The, the idea to fruition, it, I mean, it's when someone starts to believe in you. Um, so part of that story is that uh, our first lot, which we still grow on today, it's at 33rd in California, right by Cali Tacos, a little east of that. Um, and there's raised beds there. Uh, there's also a permaculture forest in the back. Um, and so that spot, vacant, used to have these big tall buildings on it because it was near the business district. And uh, you hear stories of the past that there used to be bootlegging out of the, the basements of these buildings and that's, that kind of stuff. Uh, but then one day a car veers off the road and runs into the house and then they tear it down and so now you have this vacant lot and uh, uh, a couple of guys in the neighborhood that own that lot, uh, Chris Foster and Martin Janicek, we met with them and we discussed our idea with them and they, they liked what we wanted to do and they believed in us and so by having that partnership and that connection and that belief uh, that really pushes one step forward to then find another lot and that kind of stuff. So what was the pitch for that? Well, and so that gets into Gifford Park. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful place, great culture of growing that's been started from neighbors for many years uh, with the Gifford Park Community Garden. And that's been around 18 years now. And so, uh, so with that growing culture, then uh, we talked about how we could help out with the youth garden that's established in the Gifford Park Community Garden and also start to kind of evolve the community garden to this next stage of more of a business-focused uh, growing culture. Well, so is the business then just selling what you produce or how, how does it become a business? Yeah, so it's, okay. it's so like community gardening is where you have plots and neighbors can come by and they plant their own plots and also give that produce out to friends and family and neighbors and that kind of stuff. With urban farming, it, it's bringing that produce that you grow to the market. Um, and so that can be a variety of ways, but it is kind of bringing what you grow to a market and Okay, and so, I mean, I'm just curious, so at what point did it seem like that would be sustainable enough, though, as opposed to just, if you were to grow something and bring it to a farmer's market, but no, it's like, okay, we want to actively be buying lots and sort of expanding it, and, you know, obviously you can produce more the more lots you have. What's the point where you think, like, okay, this, this is a feasible business model, we can make enough money from this to actually, you know, pitch to people? I mean, I'm just curious, like, I could have that idea, I would have no idea how to turn it into so self-sustaining anything. Sure. Uh, and so, urban farming as like a sustainable for-profit entity, uh, it requires uh, a centralized plot of land that you can really place a lot of intensity onto it, because uh, vegetable production is intensive growing. Um, and so there's a lot of successful models that way. Uh, by having a bunch of broken up plots, it makes it a little bit more challenging, but the benefits with having broken up plots are uh, you're getting more community involvement um, and there's a lot more 
educational understanding because you're working with a different soil type in this plot than you are with that plot. And so Big Muddy is an educational organization for that reason. But you can take that small uh, core experience and let that grow and so extrapolate the reality of it and uh, take it to a centralized plot. And so, is Omaha a good, I mean, would you say, obviously you think Omaha is a good location because, you, you know, you're doing it here, but what is it about Omaha other than the fact that you're from here that either has its advantages or is worthwhile for this place instead of moving somewhere else? It, it's spacious. So, I mean, that is, the sprawl is something that kind of look, look towards as that it's eating away farmland, but then also within that sprawl, for urban agriculture at least, there are pockets that you can start to do this work. Uh, and so, so there's opportunity within that sprawl. But then at the same time, in terms of larger food production, we don't want that sprawl to continue. Um, so Omaha, though, is unique in that there is space available. It, are people receptive to the message? Like, the, the, uh, let's, let's make an urban farm, let's buy some of these lots? For sure. Uh, but I wonder if Eddie has anything to say about that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in terms of the space, I don't think Omaha is any more unique than any other uh, metropolis. Um, I use that loosely, obviously, Omaha is in a bustling metropolis, but um, there's so much wasted space in all our cities. There's, in Chicago, there's a ridiculous amount of empty plots and alleyways and rooftops um, even, you know, within our own homes, we can grow. So I don't think that Omaha is necessarily unique in, in the regards of uh, the space, uh, but that urban farming itself is unique to any space. Um, and it's something that uh, is becoming more and more um, well-known and utilized. Um, so yeah, urban farming is a unique opportunity for any, any urban space. Um, and, and yeah, specifically to Omaha, there is a lot of uh, concern and desire to progress uh, society and, you know, our local community um, and the global community even. Um, so that's nice to see how many engaged, willing people there are uh, that, that allows urban farming to work and just, you know. Well, I was just saying, you say there's a lot of wasted space. How do you decide, like, what, what should space be used for or what makes it wasted? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, I think if the space isn't being utilized for anything, then, then it's, it's a waste. If it's just sitting there and it's not, even if it's, if it's for the sake of art, and you know, like we are talking about, film is, is limiting um, in terms of activism, um, but it still has its purpose. Um, and art is also very limiting in, in terms of activism, um, but it creates dialogue, gets people talking, it gets people involved. Um, so yeah, just finding, finding um, a productive, like mutually beneficial uh, way to utilize the space, I think makes it uh, like not wasteful. Yeah. How do you feel about the lawns, like grass? You like them? Uh, like I'm a lynch. You might be the wrong field. <laughs> no, uh, I'm not allergic to grass. Um, but yeah, I don't mind lawns. Um, but uh, like once again, that's a space that could be utilized to grow food. Um, and then talking about land usage, um, it's somewhere around like 
you know, 50% of our usable, like, inhabitable landmass is not utilized for, like, healthy food. You know, it's a lot of commodity crops or uh, for, like, cattle and things like that. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a waste of space where we're using it to grow food that is then turned into processed food, which then turns us into an unhealthy society um, in many facets in terms of consumption. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, yeah, using our lawns to grow food would be like a productive use of that space. Um, and there's limited space left on this earth, um, limited land. Um, so, yeah, if we, if we use that land to grow healthy, accessible food, um, then that'll just make some of these strides forward. So. Well, and so you, get, you talked before a little bit about even soil quality. So I'm thinking, like if I'm somebody who decides I want to use my lawn to make food now, I don't know the first thing about soil, I don't really know what I'm doing, I'm completely clueless. Like how do you even get a handle on some of that stuff in Omaha? That is a great place to start. Uh, so it, uh, you're going to have all these questions. Um, and within Omaha, there's one primary thing to be, be looking out for, and that's lead in the soil, especially if you live uh, 58th Street in East. Uh, but Thankfully, there is a lead registry, so you can go online to omahalead.org and uh, look up your address and check the whether it's been remediated, what kind of level it's at, and that kind of stuff. That is something to look out for. But aside from that, um, you can start to plant the seed and see how that seed grows. I mean, that's, that's like the extent of my strategy, though. It's like, if it doesn't work, all right, I guess the lawn's dead. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, start small. Uh, you can cut like a, you know, like a one square foot. Uh, uh, dig a hole, pretty much. Not a hole, but because you want it flat. But then plant a tomato seed and just go for one plant. And I think, then see, uh, see how it grows. I planted some onions one year. I think they just got eaten or that nothing grew. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I didn't learn anything from this experience. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, maybe onions not your calling. I don't know how to find my calling. What, what, what kind of vegetable do you like? I mean, I'll eat anything, honestly. Sure. I'm somebody who even, like, I like, you know, put bird feeders in the backyard. It's like, should I grow something for bunnies if they're in the backyard? What Do I even need to eat the food? I don't know. I thought you were going to say, you want to eat birds. No, no, no. <laughs> My colleague is, yeah, I'm harvesting the birds in the back. No, nothing like that. Put the bird feeders <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, I'm trapping them. Yeah, yeah. In, in that case, if you're, like, really unsure where to start, uh, you can buy transplants, uh, so sprouts from nurseries and get a tomato plant that's already been grown and then plant that right in the ground and you know where it is, you see it, and it's, it's going good. And so you have a good starting point with, uh, with a transplant. Because uh, sometimes if you plant a seed and you just don't know if it's, it's like a week later, it's like, should that be coming up? Or so the transplant's good. Chambers Club, we'll have transplants. Yeah. Right, well, that's partially why I asked. <laughs> and that would be awesome plan, so, you know. Well, and so, okay, since you guys actually know what you're talking about here, I, I should not just, like, ramble about my own failures of growing onions, but, uh, you know, like, in terms of, so you buy a lot, what do you have to do to that lot to make it actually grow whatever you want to grow? Yeah, it's suppress the grass, most likely, uh, and you can do that by throwing down some cardboard once the snow melts. Um, so that the grass doesn't start to grow and 
become vigorous. Uh, so then when you start to till it up, um, not that it always has to be tilled up, you can also use a shovel and dig it up, uh, depending on what space, what size you're, you're aiming for. And uh, yeah, so you, you want to be working the soil and make a bed out of that. And then you want to have a weed management uh, system in place, which mulching, throwing down grass clippings or straw, uh, that will help you out so much once the season starts up. And then also having a pest management, uh, understanding what you're planting and what might go after those plants. Okay, so if you're thinking about that, do you guys use, I mean, are you, if the idea is you want to not like harm anything or you want to be thinking consciously about how you're affecting the yard and you know, whatever life might be in there, you, you would probably advocate not using a bunch of the chemicals on the yard? Definitely. Okay, so, I mean, so part of that then, I assume Big Money wants to sort of teach people how to actually handle their own yards in addition to, you know, support what you're doing in terms of building or growing food, right? Sure. It's like, how, how do you get the message out to the people about how to teach them about some of this stuff? So we have farm tours throughout the season, and that's a good way to get hands-on, experience what it's like to be growing in urban lots uh, while it's in progress. And uh, yeah, we invite community groups and host tours throughout the, the year and uh, teach what's going on and how to do this in your own yard. I feel like people seem really receptive to the idea of being self-sustaining. It's like, I can make all my own food, I can live on my own, basically I can be you know, Henry David Thoreau if I want to be. Why do you think people are so into that idea, even though they don't seem to practice it in the large numbers? Because you feel empowered, you feel fulfilled that Just you, theoretically. You, can, you can rely on yourself. You, right. you feel that you're in a better place. Yeah, and I think um, it's ultimately about a deeper connection with uh, nature. Um, so a lot of things that make you self-sustainable require you to connect with nature um, in a very direct way. Um, so for instance, with farming, you have to go get your hands dirty. Um, and you spend a lot of time um, kind of putting in all this work and effort uh, to then you know reap what you sow, um, so that can that can be very satisfying for an individual rather than the immediate um, gain or satisfaction of uh, just purchasing an item, you know, building it on your own, um, cultivating it, and like putting that love into it. Um, I don't feel much of an exchange of, of love besides maybe like the cashier or something like that. Whenever I purchase a product, um, you feel love with cashiers. Yeah. yeah. I've never yeah. experienced that one. <laughs> no doubt. Like, yeah, they're wonderful people. They're there providing customer service. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So actually, like, um, tangibly being involved with uh, all aspects of your life, I think creates a, a, a deeper essence there rather than being disconnected from, you know, your every, everyday life. So, um, yeah, creating a connection with, with food and farming and nature. Is, is what uh, gets people kind of hyped up. Uh, but that hype can die off when, whenever you realize how much effort and energy has to go into this, you know. Um, so yeah, it's like we kind of talked about, about the motivation, just staying motivated to, about your, your real, your, your mission, your mission statement, um, and why you're doing something. So if it's just that, uh, like, surface level desire to like, oh, well, I, I want to do something for the sake of doing it rather than 
that deeper connection and drive it home. Yeah, then you can, I think, easily burn out. Right, well, and that's even like, I think Thoreau's made a big deal about, like, live deliberately was one of his big mottos. But even he didn't stay in the woods for that long, right? It was only a couple of years. I mean, so I guess at least partially what I'm talking about, too, is why do urban farming rather than just make a farm somewhere outside of the city in general? I think access is one of the biggest uh, things. Um, also, a lot of farms uh, seemingly are, are struggling um, to, you know, remain uh, above above water, I guess, in, in the black. Um, yeah, you've... You've, you have like these massive commercial farms um, that it's just like seemingly very difficult to compete with. Um, so it's difficult to be a farmer and you know keep your family on the farm and um, have this sustainable business. Um, yeah, we went to a conference and they were discussing how a lot of family members uh, go and work jobs in the cities or other jobs rather than just working the land. And I think that's definitely reflective of the economy um, and, and then the importance that we place on farming. Um, so I think urban farming kind of bridges that disconnect uh, between, you know, the consumer and then um, the producer. Um, so it kind of allows them to come together and, uh, you know, just really uh, benefit from each other and, and, that, um, and that exchange uh, that uh, otherwise, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know where my food comes. I wouldn't know my farmer. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to go see that plot. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I feel like people aren't even... Like, they don't even think about the concept of knowing their farmer in Omaha for the most part. It's like, like you said, the, the cashier is the only person they talk to in an exchange of goods. It's not the person who made anything for the most part. So, I mean, do you see a future of Omaha that's drastically different in that sense, where it's a lot more people widespread just accepting, like, I want to know the person who made this. I want to actually have a relationship with all the producers of things, as opposed to being, like, big commercial business. Like, let's actually have a real community and make things and consume things within it. Yeah, I, th I think it's already happening every single day. Um, there's definitely um, a lot of local involvement in, in many different scenes, including the urban agriculture scene. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, and I think the first place to start with that is with a co-op. And there's a lot of discussion going around of how are we going to put a co-op together? Where is a co-op going to take place. For someone dumb like me who can't even grow onions, what's yes. a co-op? Yes, yes, a co-op, cooperative. So uh, usually it's a grocery store that uh, many farmers come together and put their goods into the grocery store. Uh, there's many models of, of cooperative grocery stores. Uh, some of them are worker-owned and also volunteer-based too. Um, and so, yeah, it's about bringing in different farmers to then support this grocery store that is uh, supplying local produce and or local goods. Is there legislative support for what you're doing? For the for a co-op? Yeah, I mean, like, is there funding? Is there grants or any? Or are there grants or any? Is there any like push to try to move Omaha this direction, like in this other state or just in the city? Yeah. There is one bill that is working towards more community gardening uh, and having water access, good water access within urban lots and urban agriculture and community gardening is the biggest challenge. Uh, How do you get around it? What can you do? So you can pipe water on by tapping into the existing system, which costs 
upwards of two thousand or more dollars. Um, so sometimes that's not always available to to do that right off the bat, and and you need water every season. Um, and so uh, yeah, there's a bill to support match funds with getting water piped onto community garden lots. Right. Like I would think if the city was really committed to it in actually funding a lot of these things. The idea is you end up economically even keeping a lot of that money in Omaha, right? Because if everyone's growing everything, the money stays in Omaha. Right. So it seems like it'd be worthwhile. Would there be any initiatives that you would support that would make a big difference for what you're trying to do? Yeah, so I mean, there's the land bank that uh, is starting to open up plots of land for $25 a year, which uh, if you take a runway, I mean, I, I, and also to jump back just a second and then I'll come forward. Uh, that's, that's what I've been doing all night anyway. Really, so. uh, with the like urban agriculture, why urban agriculture and not uh, growing in a rural setting or anything like that, um, it, it is this, this discrepancy of young people wanting to grow but not having land access in the, the urban center, there are these plots of land that are more accessible than, say, getting 100 acres or anything like that. It's, it's capital intensive. Uh, and if you don't really live in that community, you're not going to know what lands for sale or anything like that. You really need to be ingrained in the community. So uh, for young people who are like, I want to grow, I only have so many seasons in my life, uh, and I need to start now. I'm going to start on this plot of land, and then from there, I can take that somewhere else as well. Um, but as you start to uh, get better at it, you can establish yourself within that community, and then you know your farmer, and um, and also the distribution is a lot easier. So, um, and then moving forward in terms of initiatives, uh, that. That's with the land bank is twenty five dollars a year, and it helps revitalize communities uh, because it's it's a development that's not significantly capital intensive. So we're not proposing to build a you know uh, even quarter million dollar building or anything like that. We're proposing to buy some seeds for like a hundred bucks and plant those. On, on this vacant lot, grow some food, which then has uh, value in that, and uh, keep moving from there. So uh, th there are initiatives with the land bank uh, that, is, that is pushing forward on this. I mean, sure, there's issues within how all that gets addressed because land ownership is a, uh, is a, a sensitive subject. So. Yeah, what is it that there's like, what, 2% of land in Nebraska is public land, or yeah, something like that. I think 90, is it 98%, 97% is privately owned? I could understand that, yeah. <laughs> something like that, yeah. We, we like our land here. For sure, yeah. <laughs> um, well, and so like, what, what's the future for Big Muddy? I mean, what do you, where do you see it going other than some of the things we've talked about? Sure, I mean, it, for the farm, it is trying to get this next step for residents should they want to continue in urban farming or in farming agriculture, sustainable agriculture, uh, how can we support residents in taking the next step in that career? Um, and so uh, we're working on what that looks like. Uh, that could be considered a another residency second component that 
is located outside the city, uh, so you're starting to understand production scale a little bit more. It could also mean uh, another residency within the city uh, growing on lots too, expanding the experience. It's probably a good uh, opportunity to talk about the residencies in general. What is the residency program? Yeah, uh, so the residency program is, there's five residents, and then uh, a second year resident as well, so six residents altogether, living in two houses uh, for a whole year, and at the beginning of the year, put, put together a business plan, that then that is uh, realized and put into action on the plots. So there's five plots near the house, there's three chicken coops, and uh, also incorporated with the residency is this iterative learning process, service learning process where you're hosting tour groups, so you're starting to explain what you are doing and learning by that explanation, and also teaching youth garden lesson plans as well. And so Eddie, you, you are a resident, right? Okay, how'd you first hear about the whole program? Um, well, I lived in Omaha, for a certain period of time, about four, four and a half years ago. And uh, just out of pure happenstance, I stumbled across Big Muddy. And I'm sure at that point, it was still pretty early on. I don't think even the residency program wasn't developed until 2017. So um, I just was kind of following Big Muddy. Um, and there was, even at that point, it was a very small following. Uh, but they caught my attention for whatever reason, some sort of awesome social media post. Um, and then when I came back to Omaha, I saw, um, you know, a lot of information about the residency program and it almost seemed too good to be true. And uh, just one of those opportunities that uh, I, I didn't think that, that I would uh, secure. Um, just because it seemed like such a rare, unique, and beneficial opportunity. Um, that they would only select like, you know, the creme de la creme and they, they wanted people who would be able to produce and who had a lot of experience uh, with farming and horticulture and agriculture in general. Um, they would uh, almost be like, I, I treat it more as, as, as though I was applying for a job. Um, so like my resume, which amazing we didn't have to submit a resume or anything of that sort, but if, if I did on paper, I was like, there's no way. Um, but that's kind of what's really amazing about this opportunity is empowering individuals to then, you know, understand a lot of the nitty gritty and the business aspects and um, really just get them involved with the community and a lot of activism. Um, yeah, so it's just, yeah, it, I don't know. Uh, just to say it's an amazing opportunity. Uh, I'm really grateful for it. But yeah, submitted my application. Uh, the focus was short answer questions um, ranging from uh, what do you want to grow to, you know, how do you deal with uh, interpersonal conflicts and things like that. Were you um, doing anything related to farming at that point? Uh, not in the slightest. <laughs> so, okay, so they ask, what do you want to grow? How do you pick yeah. an answer? Uh, well, I was thinking what I like to eat. Um, <laughs> so, what did you come up with? Uh, my, I think my answer was something along the lines of uh, leafy green vegetables. Because they're so like. <laughs> you like to eat leafy greens? <laughs> I do. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm a sucker for the greens. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a lot of questions of that sort. Um, and uh, I actually submitted it uh, very late. I just it was just kind of like, well, I might as well try. Um, and then the next the next step after the application 
um, which I can't stress enough. I, uh, I own a lot of applications. It's been resume and a lot of paper things, but it seemed it was like, you know, how do you feel about life and things? What do you want to do? Who you are? You know, really get into it. And then the next step was uh, an, an in-person interview with five members throughout the community, board members, um, farmers. Uh, the farm coordinator or the second year resident was there as well. Um, so yeah, then it's just basically like a conversation, which is also really nice. So. Well, and you seem like you, you have a lot of passion for it as well as kind of a cohesive worldview that you can talk about in relation to that. Was that something you had at the time you applied or did that sort of develop over the program? Yeah, I think if I would have applied four or five years ago, um, you know, not even considering the, the, the paper request uh, prerequisites, um, I, I wouldn't have had that worldview. So I think it uh, just kind of came full circle with um, what needs to be done and how we can do it and how we can really move things forward. And I definitely think the way that we develop our cities in the next, you know, 20, 30 years is going to make some of the biggest differences um, that we can see, um, once again, whether it's, you know, um, social, economic, political, whatever have you. Um, so, yeah, I think it's amazingly important for us to give access to food in an urban environment. So, yeah. Well, okay, so <clears throat> in terms of when you're picking people for the residencies, I mean, are you looking for, I mean, so if he didn't have a whole lot necessarily experience but has a lot of passion, what is it you're looking for and how do you pick the right people for the project? Uh, and that is where you have a committee. And so within that process of discussing things out about applications where within the applications, the community only sees the short answer questions. So not going into whose name is on it or any of the protected class information. Um, and so just looking at what do you want to do uh, and, and thinking back at the beginning of Big Money, there were quite a few of us myself included, that didn't have any experience. But the experience itself teaches it. Mm -hmm. And so it, it doesn't rely strictly on growing experience. It, you, you have some sort of experience, some sort of strength that you're going to bring to the table. And so... Uh, as long as it's not like, my, what, what food do you like? And you're like, it's burgers. <laughs> you're like, well, uh, you know. We can't for these towns. Yeah. Yeah. Birds. Birds. Birds, yeah. yeah. We have chickens. Yeah. That kind of counts. Right. This is probably a good time. I know you guys have a lot of uh, familiar faces in the audience. And it's not the massive audience, you know. You, not the best audience necessarily to open up to questions, but it's a good opportunity, especially if I did not ask something and you're like, wait a second, what is that? Or like, you should definitely ask this thing. Does the audience have any questions that they want to ask to our uh, people up here? Yes? So uh, how do I go about getting the products that you guys are growing? Is there anywhere in particular I should go? Yeah, certainly. So just for the question, the question was, um, how would one obtain Big Muddy's products? Um, so there's several methods. Um, you can definitely begin with uh, subscribing to our email list, and then uh, through that we'll put out information about our CSA. Um, I think you know community-supported agriculture is pivotal. Um, once again, you get to meet your farmer, you get to see the food, you can do a farm tour, um, you become really hands-on involved. With, with your food, the food that you consume. Um, so yeah, there's the, the CSA information that we'll put out. Um, we'll be at the Gifford Park Markets on Fridays. Okay. Uh, that starts at the end of May. Yeah. That'll be 
in five seconds, it's a really awesome market. And they also, uh, Highlander Market on Thursdays, it's uh, 33rd in Burnett. Alright, yeah. So we'll be at a couple markets. Uh, I definitely recommend attending both if you can. Um, just kind of get involved with other vendors in the community. And, um, yeah, and then I feel like I'm missing some things to say. Market. Follow us on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, our social media. Okay. Um, and then also, you can come like physically to us. You know, we live on 33rd and Burr. All our plots are within a half mile, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, the original, I guess, was 33rd in California. Um, so, yeah, we have uh, Burt Street, Webster, California, uh, Cottage Grove, one all there. So, you're more than welcome to come see what we're doing. And, um, yeah, so, awesome. Okay, yeah, thank you. Do you guys try to sell anything to like local markets in terms of like if it's a grocery store or anything like that, or is that against the philosophy? Um, grocery stores seemingly are uh, kind of difficult. It seems like a little more competitive. Uh, in terms of like they don't they don't give you a good deal to actually sell what you have. Um, I think that they're a little more concerned about profit depending on the grocery store, um, and then from a business standpoint. If they can get cheaper produce that isn't necessarily local, then a lot will go with that. Um, so where we really thrive is with you know the local community, people who uh, will come to the markets and, and buy our stuff. But then also there are restaurants um, throughout Omaha uh, that will utilize our produce. Uh, right now we're working with uh, Kitchen Table, um, Crazy Gringa Hot Sauce, uh, pretty good stuff, uh, Boiler Room. Um, and then we're still like crafting uh, connections, uh, but then uh, at the same time with restaurants, it can be difficult uh, because you know um, the restaurant that I work, they want sixty dozen eggs for a weekend, and you know we can produce a little less than twenty dozen on a week. Um, so it's also that supply. So our emphasis and our basis are is the individual and community, and not necessarily trying to get into grocery stores and. You know, have these larger wholesale markets that, yeah, if we could, we would profit more, but then there's that disconnect with the consumer, you know. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. And also with grocery stores, too, they're expecting uh, the farm to have a very large insurance policy, which usually comes with scale. And so, yeah, there's a scale that we can't supply to the grocery store. Also, the grocery store wants this insurance policy in case someone gets sick from the produce that we grow or something like that because they're such a large business that they're just protecting themselves. And so it, uh, it doesn't quite match up with our scale. So. Any other questions? <clears throat> so these, a lot of these people, these two tables are, uh, you know them? Yeah. Yeah. How come you guys are so awesome? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, are you their boss right there? Right there? <laughs> it's a good opportunity to suck up. <laughs> it's because we all live together. So. <laughs> okay, uh, where does the name Big Money come from? Right, Riverside Chats. Uh, so it is the Riverside. It, it's the Missouri River is the Big Money uh, nickname. And that's where it came from. Though, I, I mean, I was at a conference in like uh, St. Louis and they were talking about a river 
in like Tennessee that they nicknamed the Big Muddy too. So I think any river, wow. homage to the river. Just to rivers in general. Yeah, yeah rivers uh, are good. Yeah, water. Yeah, great <laughs> homage. Um, you may notice our uh, like our standard uh, label um, has uh, a farmer in like worker mud boots, rain boots. Um, and I just want to clear up the record, those aren't uh, Brent's knees on that description. I feel like I'm missing something. <laughs> the, the, our, uh, the big muddy label, the main one we use, is very, it's like very skinny legs with like very bony knees. It's and, not and Brent. Is, is he, are you, uh, it's a cartoon. Yeah, it's a cartoon depiction of someone that we don't know. It's you worry people true. think it's your knees or something? I, I thought it was Brent's knees. But then I told them how bad my knees are. <laughs> and that, that just couldn't be my knees. Uh, but those knees are all of us. Whoever wants to, whoever wants to fill the boots. <laughs> Alright, so what's the best thing people can do other than follow you on Facebook, go to the markets? Is there anything else you want our audience to take away about how they can help with what you're trying to do here? Yeah. Go to the website, uh, join the email on this, and stop by for a tour. Uh, we'd love to have you. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks for Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce it along with Ben Matukowitz through our company, Exarbon Creative. Riverside Chats live shows are produced in cooperation with B-Side of the Benson Theater. Benson Theater is a great local project. It's a great venue that will exist if you help support it financially for anybody. Basically, like shows like what we do, artists, politics, anybody interesting in Omaha needs venues, essentially, to get their word out. So Benson Theater is a great, great project for that. Please look into the renovation. Please come to B-Side events. And, of course... Throughout the talk today, uh, my guests did discuss different ways that you can support Big Muddy Urban Farm by buying their seeds, by buying products directly from them. Please, please do so. And also, please follow them on social media. It's Big Muddy Urban Farm. Their website, if you need more information, is BigMuddyUrbanFarm.org. Please follow it. Also, please stay tuned to upcoming Riverside Chats if you want to see or hear, rather. You could, you, well, you, could, you could be there, you could see it, or you could just listen to the podcast version. You got a lot of options with Riverside Chats. To see who we have upcoming, please follow Riverside Chats on social media. Please follow us on your favorite podcast app, however you want to do it. It's up to you. We'll be back next week talking with Bridget Timmerman, who directed a new movie about the Omaha tribe, and specifically the few members of the Omaha tribe who still speak the original Omaha language. It's a small, small, and continually continually decreasing number of people who actually speak that language, but Bridget got an opportunity to talk to them for her new documentary, The Omaha Speaking. I'm very much looking forward to getting a chance to talk to Bridget about this project that has been many years in the making, and I hope you will enjoy it as well. Upcoming guests also include Rachel Jacobson of Filmstreams and Kara Eastman. So please stay tuned. Please follow our pages. Support us so we can keep doing this, so we can keep highlighting interesting events. And if you have suggestions for guests, you want us to talk about anything specific, yell at us. I mean, co- comment something. Comment on something that I'll that I'll look at. If you yell, I might not. I might not hear you, or I might ignore you because you're yelling at me. But there are ways. Follow us. Email us. Contact exurbancreative.com if you want to be on the show, or if you know somebody who should be on it. As always, please follow us. Please stay tuned. Please 
Be aware of what's going on in Omaha. Be aware of what's going on in your life. Let's bring it back to Thoreau for the end here. There's nothing better you can do than to live deliberately. We'll be back next week.